It's time for the December 15, 2023 edition of Weekly Signals Weekly Review. A personal recollection of the last 168 hours of history, broadcasting on Cat Herders Day from the <laughs> University of California at Irvine on KUCI 88.9 FM. I'm Nathan Callahan. I'm Claudia Shambaugh. And as always, a feller who hasn't found a cat he couldn't herd, Mahler, the fake news dog. Keep him in line, Mahler. That's a tough job. Yeah, hurting cats. That's you a feudal. No. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a, that's a good good advice. You know, don't. Don't even start. Don't even try. Unless, of course, you're you're our friend here. Good boy, Nice, Mahler. nice thought, dear today, <laughs> today we'll be talking about La Posada at the U.S.-Mexico border, direct sound printing, willful ignorance, Emoji biodiversity and so much more, but first from Mashable. On last week's show, we announced that Merriam Webster's word of the year for 2023 is authentic. That's actually the word. That's, mm-hmm. It's not an authentic word. Well, I guess it's an authentic word as far as words go. This week, dictionary.com announced its word of the year hallucinate. They're talking about computers. Hallucinate AI. is hallucinate. Yeah. Uh, yeah, AI. When we look at the different words associated with artificial intelligence, we saw that hallucinate really encapsulated this notion that AI wasn't exactly what we as a culture wanted it to be. Grant Barrett, head of lexicography at the dictionary.com site, said the site saw a 46% increase in look ups for hallucinate over the previous year while hallucinate's use in digital publications increased 85 percent year over year the online reference also reported an average 62 percent increase in year over year lookups for other ai related terminology mainly because we didn't hear about it before last year such as chat box gpt and generative ai as dictionary.com defines it In AI terms, hallucinate means to produce false information contrary to the intent of the user and present it as if it was true and factual. They're giving them their minds. We're asking, are they human? And then we're treating them like they're human, rather than just saying, when the AI is hallucinating, it's not working. That's what's going on here. We haven't found a way to make this work properly. It's like your car breaking down. Truth has nothing to do with it. It's a bad carburetor. Hmm. It's the anthropomorphication of computers. That part. Yes, 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 yes. From the New York Times, Neanderthals. You know, those guys were morning people. Hmm. A new study suggests, and some humans today who like getting up early can credit genes they inherited from their Neanderthal ancestors for their early rise. A new study compared DNA in living humans with genetic material retrieved from Neanderthal fossils. It turns out that Neanderthals carried some of the same clock-related genetic variants as do people who report being early risers. Early humans lived in Africa, fairly close to the equator, where the duration of days and nights stays roughly the same over the course of the year. And that's what I tell people who complain about daylight savings. Move to the equator. This isn't something that your government's going to ever be able to figure out unless we all 
synchronize our clocks and then have the day shift according to the sun, if you know what I mean. Okay. Yeah. I'm following you, but I'm just trying to think of the thought is moving to the equator is a lot more work than <laughs> yeah. trying to just adjust in the, maybe it takes up to a couple of weeks to adjust. I know. That's why I deal with it. Yeah. I, I just deal with it. Yeah. 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 I'm just trying to think about the, what the clock's got to do with survival. If you're starting out early, is it getting you in where the food chain is roaming? Is it it's a good time to find something to yeah. sustain you? And, I mean, there's just got to be a string of survival reinforcing exactly. features there. But Neanderthals moved into higher latitudes, where the day became longer in the summer and shorter in the winter. Over hundreds of thousands of years, their circadian clocks may have adapted to the mm. new environment for reasons of survival. If the link between early risers and Neanderthals hold up, the researchers hope that ancient body clocks can inspire some ideas about how we can adapt to the modern world, where circadian rhythms are disrupted by night shifts and glowing smartphones. These disruptions don't just make it hard to get a good night's sleep. They can also raise the risk of cancer, obesity, and a host of other disorders. Diabetics, all those things are somehow from that disruption of Disruption sleep. of circadian rhythms? And late nights. Sleep deprivation yeah. creates that cascading effect of the diabetes and other conditions. Do you think it's looking at your computer too late at night? Well, I think it's a body clock and just that you're staying up way too late. You're depriving yeah. yourself of sleep. So there's probably an elaborate array of hormones that are coming and going that interfere with appetite triggers and all that. People it's staying up too late are probably not. They're probably introducing more food that has to be metastasized in their system late yeah. at night. And so that metabolic process when you should be shutting down is keeping you up. And it's, yeah. all, all those things are switching the body into some precursors for diabetes and other things yeah i make it a point to eat dinner and then shut down that's that yeah. is so smart yeah i mean as far as eating i'll do a lot of other stuff but to eat after six or seven is foolhardy and i used to and that's foolhardy from nature communications as pure carnivores who lack the ability to process plant material Household and feral cats are always on the prowl for prey to hunt or carrion to scavenge. In a paper published this week, researchers compiled a database of more than 2,000 species that have fallen victim to free-ranging domestic cats. Nearly 350 of these species are of conservation concern, and several are already extinct. We really don't know of any other mammal that eats this many different species, says the study's lead author, Christopher Lefchik, an ecologist at Auburn University. It's almost like the indiscriminate eater. They're eating whatever is available. Does that sound like a cat to you? Yeah. How about you, Mother? Does it sound like a cat? Uh-huh. Though common prey such as mice, rats, sparrows, and rabbits were widely represented across the scientific literature, the team also found evidence of cats scavenging more surprising game such as green sea turtles, emus, and even domestic cattle. A cat goes after domestic cattle? Yeah, a group of them could, and who knows what they do. Oh, I can't imagine. Once you're on their heads, you know, you could do some real damage. Take them down. Oh, wow. 
can't cancer a problem that we can solve, Lefchik says, especially if the animals are prevented from freely roaming through native ecosystems. At the end of the day, people need to be responsible pet owners, especially if your cat's out there eating a cow. But that's not a species. That's a domesticated species. You're talking about the endangered ones and the, the, yeah, yeah. the free-range kitties are going. Yeah. Free-range kitties. Look out for them. So remember, it may be 30 years ago in the United Kingdom where a particular village cooperated in a research project. And they kept track because the cats would bring back, let's say, the skeletal remains. Yeah. And so they had every villager that owned a cat keep records of all of that and so they realized oh my god and everybody didn't appreciate how much the cats devoured out in their free range little lifestyles so this has been known for a long time what i thought was interesting in that article when they said that when humans and cats started to collide that because cats were such terrific hunters the humans kept cats closer i just oh. love that line so you know you know your enemy better that or maybe the cats bag more and they can share it. I got you. We were scavenging huh. from the cats. We were we could have been surplus. Yeah. <laughs> if you're Enough just, about cats here, yeah. Mahler. If you're just waking up and wonder what your cat's been eating, may I recommend a donation to KUCI because we are too. Just go to KUCI.org. Your generous donation is how we stay on air. Commercial-free, free-form, free-speech radio, KUCI, 88.9 FM. Hey, buddy. Hi. From Yahoo.com, tropical fish have started to appear off the coast of Nova Scotia, Canada. Scuba divers have discovered seahorses, cornet fish, triggerfish, and butterfly fish, none of which are native to the cool northern climate of Nova Scotia. Instances of animals turning up in climates that they are not native to have been on the rise, not just in Nova Scotia, but worldwide, as human-caused pollution has led to changing weather and warmer temperatures. This has resulted in many animals changing their migratory patterns and others seeking out comfortable temperatures in places that would have traditionally been too cold for them. While this does not always necessarily spell doom for the animals doing the migration, in a broader sense, introducing new animals to an ecosystem can have ripple effects that cause trouble for the existing life there. And we're going to see this all over. It's not just with fish, it's with any ecosystem that's getting disrupted enough to drive animals out and find a new home somewhere else. I think that's what we're seeing in, uh, in this area, in Orange County. There's a lot of wildlife that have come down from the hills for a variety of reasons. Because of climate change in the sense that the wildfires have burned their habitat down. So they're coming more into the city to scavenge. And drought forcing yeah. them to find the water and then offshore as you were talking about yeah. that shift too yeah. we're seeing more sharks in the area they're swimming in closer yeah. to follow where the food is so it's a it's pretty elaborate from scientific american death can happen at lower temperatures than an established scientific measure of heat survivability indicates according to a new study from arizona state university the study found that the primary methodology to measure deadly heat called wet bulb global temperature is inadequate, 
resulting in artificially low mortality estimates from extreme heat events. Wet bulb global temperature is a measure of the heat stress in direct sunlight, which takes into account not only temperature, but humidity, wind speed, sun angle, and cloud cover. Last summer, a heat wave in Phoenix, for example, killed at least 579 people, according to the Maricopa County Department of Public Health. The same heat wave was also linked to more than 150 deaths in Texas. A wet bulb reading of 95 degrees Fahrenheit, which is roughly 99 degrees using standard measurements, is considered the limit for human survivability over six hours of unshaded outdoor exposure. It's 95 degrees Fahrenheit on the wet bulb reading. But the study found that millions of Americans could die at wet bulb temperatures much lower than 95 degrees as humidity increases and other human factors come into play. A healthy young adult, for example, could die after six hours of exposure to 92 degrees Fahrenheit with 50% humidity, according to the study. A healthy elderly person could die at 91 degrees Fahrenheit under the same humidity levels. The Arizona State University researchers say that the wet bulb survivability threshold does not account for real-world conditions. It assumes the exposed person is fully sedentary, unclothed, and lacks any health risk factors like body mass index or heart health. I don't get the unclothed, but I suppose they had to give some, some baseline there. Yeah. They were doing the measurements, you know, uh, hmm. based on that. Hmm. What are they going to say? Dress only in linens. Yeah, let's go back, though. Bring back the, the sleep deprivation. We're talking about the Neanderthals, morning people. There's so many factors in wet bulb global temperature that is lowering anything that can undermine survivability and heat. Sleep deprivation. There could be so many, many, many things. So you haven't slept enough the night before because you were up having uh, chicken wings at 11 o'clock. And you go out. Oh, because you were on your third shift in one day. That too. And now you're going to go out and harvest without any cover. And you don't have good primary care. And so maybe you're not, something isn't fully mending. There's just compromises that I'm sure can keep lowering that wet bulb global temperature. There's got to be a... A shorter version. The standard temp. Wet bulb. It sounds a little bit dim, too. Like, you're a wet bulb. Oh, I didn't think about that. I just keep looking at the thermometer with the wet bulb, with the mercury pushing up the red. From Wong Cat, our uh, good friend from the late and great OC Weekly commie girl. Oh. Rebecca Shonecroft. Okay. Online news magazine from Wong Cat. The annual UN Climate Summit... COP28 ended in Dubai with nearly 200 countries agreeing to transition away from fossil fuels for generating energy. The first time a conference of the parties summit has explicitly called for an end to the use of fossil fuels. The agreement doesn't include a timeline for ending fossil fuel use. Instead, it calls for countries to take the needed steps to transition away from fossil fuels in energy systems, and these are their words, in a just, orderly, and equitable manner, accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. A goal that China, incidentally, is likely to reach next year. The agreement also calls for deep reductions in methane emissions, since methane is a far more powerful greenhouse gas, molecule by molecule, than carbon dioxide. 
CO2 remains the worst greenhouse gas since the amount of CO2 the world emits is far greater than any other. And as usual, the statement calls for increased development of carbon capture and storage capacity, although that technology is still being developed and may be difficult to scale up. Now, I'm glad they came to this decision. It was really wonderful to see them all in agreement after all these years. It's just I hope it's not too little too late. And, and it is too little too late for some factors in this. We're going to have a lot to uh, make up for over the next 20 or 30 years as far as our climate goes. You want to know something amazing about the hosting of COP29? Sure. And you know it's going to be in Azerbaijan next oh, year. Okay. And the, that was a an agreement in order for Armenian prisoners of war to be released from Azerbaijan. To have the... To uh, have that... Cop the COP29 hosted Azerbaijan. Huh. So there's a lot of back-channel stuff going yeah, on. Wow. And so that's going, though, from one fossil fuel national product country to another country whose gross domestic product relies on yeah. the carbon underground. Okay, we've given them two in a row, it sounds like. How about having it in the Marshall Islands next year? Well, you know the practicalities of that. But I, I just, but it's just, it was first well, unknowing, it was unnerving to read that announcement. And then we have sources yeah. in our midst that explained that was a negotiation there. The fossil fuel portfolio is speaking louder than the science voices. Well, how about in Miami then? Go to a place where there's not, not yeah, in Miami's the middle a of, a, there. Of, a, of a desert area, but in a place where you might get some protesters to show up take your uh, delegation into the uh, area. Let them see what's going on. Let's look at, though, the optics of COP28. They're surreal kinds of architecture that all of these people converged in. Yeah. It's unreal. And we know that there are, with the fossil fuel countries in the Middle East, that the per capita consumption of fossil fuels is the highest. Yeah. They're air conditioning those bizarre huge indoor expanses. Yeah. It's an unreal, unsustainable fossil fuel consuming setting. Just the aesthetic of it and the function of it just tells us so much of how detached those decision makers are from what you're saying the case could be made where king tides and other obvious climate change is showing up. From Grist. A new law signed by Governor Gavin Newsom in October instructs state agencies to study the feasibility and impacts of capturing ocean movement to create power and report back to the legislature by January 25. The goal is to jumpstart an industry that could fill in the power gaps as California tries to achieve its goal of transitioning to an all-renewable electric grid by 2045. But for all the interest in renewable energy and the government subsidies, public investment in ocean energy has lagged. So Newsom has signed this into uh, doing a feasibility report, but it sounds like they're going to have to really uh, up their game over the next couple years to make it feasible. The technology that would make the projects more efficient, cost-effective, and able to withstand a punishing sea environment is still under development. This is a far better way, I think, than the wind turbines off the coast, because this is a more reliable generator. It's more constant. Yeah. I'm just watching closely the policies and initiatives from Governor Newsom are telling us 
whose brain trust and donors he's working with. Yeah. We were dealing with desalination. He's been very adamant about all of his appointments on the Public Utility Commission and the California Coastal Commission, other appointments from the governor's office. Of course, he shares them with the state legislature. But how much those are sectors that are coming from certain financial portfolios that he is sandbagging yeah. for, I don't know what he's going to do nationally. He, he can just be a leader. It doesn't have to be in the White House, but some kind of leader large. But there is a very tight tech bro kind of brain trust that he's initiating a lot of these energy and water decisions. Especially with uh, the solar panel, the residential solar panel. That's one of them. So it's the battery people, the people that are trying to expand the battery adoption. That's part of his portfolio, too. Yeah. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. Visit us on the web at KUCI.org, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash KUCI 88.9, on our Tumblr blog at KUCIRadio.tumblr.com, and on Twitter and Instagram at KUCIFM. Earlier this month, during the annual tradition of La Posada, my host today, Claudia Shamba, visited the U.S.-Mexico border and checked in with the program of the American Friends Service Committee at various open-air detention sites in San Diego County. According to the American Friends Service Committee website, every U.S. taxpayer dollar given to ICE, the Immigration Customs Enforcement and Customs and Border Protection, is money that harms people in our communities and those seeking refuge from devastating conditions. As Congress considers a new funding bill, we must move away from funding state violence in forms of arrest, detentions, and deportations to focus on investing in education, health care, and supporting families. In 2023, the U.S. government spent over $24.8 billion on abusive immigration enforcement in border walls, which led to family separations avoidable death, and instability in neighborhoods along the border. What did you see there? First, it's only 100 miles away from this station where we're talking, and it's the busiest port of entry in the world. Those those two things, let them sink in, everybody. But so there's now... In the world. In the world. So there are two walls... And one of them is under construction and on inside the USA. It's a 30-foot wall now. So, But there's two walls where that open-air detention site is. There's a, there's a whole lot of them, and you can, you can see them. You can go right up to the, that one wall. They used to do those little pinky hugs things through the... Right. But you can't do that. There is a, now a buffer, a swath of 50, 80 feet between the two walls. You are trespassing if you go actually up to the Mexican-U.S. border wall. You cannot get there anymore. That 30-foot wall is meant to make it um, more of a barrier to scale. So the people that do scale that have traumatic injuries or it's a lethal fall from there. The open-air detention site where people have been detained indefinitely, they don't know how long they're in there, it's dirt there was one porta potty near the site where this La Posada event was held last Saturday. 
it's just dirt. If people are going to be detained for five, four or five days, what do you do? You don't have any Is personal effects. Is any kind effects. of shelter at all? Nothing. So Maybe There's no roof. There's No, it's open air. It's an yeah, open uh, air yeah, detention there. site. People are exposed either to the extreme heat or extreme cold. And in a Yakumba site that's in the Sonora Desert in California... That site is even more extreme heat and more extreme cold, and it's off everybody's radar. So those authorities that deal with border protection are probably practicing measures that are not witnessed as much as what's going on at the up to four sites in the Tijuana, San Ysidro area. So imagine, though, by the time you've come here, you've walked thousands of miles, and they come. There were seven Brazilians that were dropped off inside that detention site when we were finishing up this event they hadn't eaten in a whole day so there's food there's water and there's cell phone charging stations there and that's that's like the first thing that happens when somebody is dropped off there so they're there indefinitely it's now a shorter detention time because of certain fatalities that had occurred about a couple of months ago but it's but it's for days, yes. It was. It used to be for days. Now it's. It could be for overnight. It could be for hours. But it, it all depends. Okay. What's going on? But there's an incentive to move it up a little faster. The uh-huh. release to, and some of them may go straight to the airport and meet a friend who's sponsoring them somewhere else in the U.S. Or they could be going to the hospital in San Diego. There's there's places they they are returned. But you cannot break up your custody you as an asylum seeker from when you're inside that open air detention site and where you go f- from there regards what condition you've got to you've got to keep in touch with the immigration services so you can maintain your application status as an asylum seeker it's pretty elaborate and they don't have that many resources to deal with all of that and they're coming from all over the world as i had the american friends service committee a coordinator was on my show this week, and you know they're they're coming from everywhere. It's not just a Latin American mm-hmm. situation. Well, you're saying they don't have any resources, but we spend twenty five billion dollars on that. And well, that, where's that all going? It's hardening that border. It's arming them. It's the more and more detection devices, more paid employees to drive their three wheelers or the pickup trucks and up and down there and continue to pound those 30 foot pillars in there for the wall. It takes all that. It seems like this isn't working. It isn't working. What is working is the red meat campaign issue. And it's so, so complicated. I was pushed yesterday by someone who said, well, what are they? They shouldn't be coming here. There's so many reasons why they're coming here, and I explained to that person that it's a rational decision to leave threatening circumstances, and you know I sort of listed all those. So it's so complicated to raise that red meat topic to voters is an unfair debate tactic to address how expensive it is and how it's only beginning, because we've already talked about climate change in this show and you've talked about it many, many times on Weekly Signals, is as climate change intensifies, more refugees are coming. Yeah. It's not going to abate. It's only going to intensify. It's amazing what those volunteers are doing there. And it's taking in that whole situation. It's a lesson.
From the New York Times. Archaeologists excavating parts of the ancient city of Pompeii made public new discoveries last week that provide a grim glimpse into the bleak existence of enslaved people two millenniums ago, including the existence of a bakery prison. The newly excavated area consists of a cramped space where donkeys and enslaved people lived, slept, and worked together, milling flour to make bread. The single window that was found there provided dim light. It opened not to the outside world, but to another room in the house and was crossed with iron bars. The brutality of the working conditions in the mills of the time is graphically described in Book 9 of The Golden Ass by the 2nd century author Apuleius. With their feet chained, the workers had eyes so blurry from the scorching heat of that smoke-filled darkness they could barely see and like wrestlers sprinkled with dust before a fight, they were coarsely whitened with flowery ash. The donkeys' flanks were cut to the bone from relentless whipping, their hoofs distorted to strange dimensions from the repetitive circling, and their whole hide blotched by mange and hollowed by starvation. The constricted workspace had at least four tightly packed millstones. The floor around them is marked by a series of semicircular indentations of varying depth to prevent the animals from sliding on the pavement, but also to keep them in a kind of choreography so they didn't bump into each other. The bakery is behind a wall with a fresco. In another room, excavation earlier this year uncovered a series of political inscriptions, the ancient equivalent of today's electoral manifestos and posters. The inscriptions invite people to vote for a candidate for the position of Adil, an elected public works official during the Roman Republic. The discovery of political slogans inside the house was a first for Pompeii and suggested the possible collusion between elected officials and the owners of bakeries. I don't think I could describe hell any more vividly. Well, it's got a bakery at least. You think Satan has a bakery? <laughs> Yeah, at least you can get a nice crisp there. Oh, just all those details, just oh. Yeah, I don't well, know how bread tastes when you go th- when that loaf goes through that setting. There must be a taint. I don't know how to react to this because my I first know. thing is to to think we haven't changed that much. That's that's exactly when no. I had a look at that too. I wouldn't be surprised if this was something that we found out was happening in uh, meat packing plants. Yeah, exactly. From the Associated Press, Mississippi is starting the court-ordered process of letting people cite religious beliefs to seek exemptions from state-mandated vaccinations that children must receive before attending daycare or school, so they won't must receive them anymore. Mississippi is one of the poorest states and has high rates of health problems such as obesity and heart disease, but has received praise from public health officials for years because... It has some of the highest rates of childhood vaccination against diseases like polio, measles, and mumps. Under Mississippi's new religious exemption process, state health officials cannot question the sincerity of a person's religious beliefs. Mississippi once had a religious exemption for childhood vaccinations, but it was overturned in 1979 by a state court judge who ruled that vaccinated children have a constitutional right to be free from associating with their unvaccinated peers. What I found shocking is that you cannot question the sincerity of a person's religious belief. So 
they can just pretty much. But there's no religion that says not to get a vaccination. Yeah. Period. Yeah. I know what you're going to say. There's no religion that says thou shalt not be stuck. But on the other hand. But uh, it's so sad since they had such a high rank for vaccination yeah. percentages. And it's now. Boy, Mississippi GD. Nina Simone had it just right. From the Washington Post, the nation's largest pharmacy chains have handed over Americans' prescription records to police and government investigators without a warrant. The congressional investigation found raising concerns about threats to medical privacy. Though some of the chains required their lawyers to review law enforcement requests, three of the largest, CVS Health, Kroger, and Rite Aid, with a combined 60,000 locations nationwide said they allowed pharmacy staff members to hand over customers' medical records in the store. The revelation could shape the debate over Americans' expectations of privacy as Texas and other states move to criminalize abortion and drugs related to reproductive health. And from New Science, after months of effort, Montreal's Concordia University 3D printed a solid object by exposing a liquid to a focused field of sound waves transmitted through a solid wall. Concordia's team's new direct sound printing technology is the first to create a solid structure using sound waves from behind a barrier. And although it has a long way to go to reach commercial viability, researchers believe their remote control 3D printing opens the door to numerous possibilities that include minimally evasive tissue engineering and bioimplant repair within the human body. From Scientific American, researchers have shown that willful ignorance is common, with 40% of people in a recent study choosing not to know the consequences of their actions in order to free themselves of the guilt of doing what they want. The good news is that scientists also found that about 40% of people are altruistic, they seek to learn the consequences of their actions to benefit others. <laughs> and from Los Angeles Times, <laughs> there is a biodiversity crisis in our phones. According to a team of ecologists who have undertaken the most comprehensive survey to date on flora and fauna of Emojipedia, the global directory of pictograms recognized by the International Unicode Standard, Earth has millions of fungi species, but the official emoji library has only one. Amanita muscaria, the red-capped, white-spotted mushroom found in fairy tale picture books in Super Mario Brothers. A staggering 180,000 species of butterflies and moths flit about this planet, yet their lone emoji avatar is a generic blue butterfly that looks like a spring break tattoo. <laughs> Emojis power an enormous amount of global conversation, the researcher said. And when emoji biota are limited, the ecologists argue in a new paper, so is the scope of the natural world that we can talk about, advocate for, and ultimately protect. And there's another powerful argument for expanding the emoji library to include science-themed topics. Kids love them, and they provide an easy and accessible way to introduce new themes. From the BBC, an Ohio woman who was convicted of assault for hurling a burrito bowl at a Chipotle worker was offered an unusual way to reduce her jail time. At first, Rosemary Hain, 39, was slated to pay a fine and serve 180 days in jail, 
with 90 days suspended. But then the judge had another idea. You didn't get your burrito bowl the way you like it, and this is how you respond, Judge Timothy Gillian told Hain at her sentencing in Parma, Ohio. Mm. This is not real housewives of Parma. This behavior is not acceptable, he said. Judge Gillian told Hain she could cut off 60 days in jail if she agreed to work at least 20 hours per week at a fast food restaurant for two months. Wow. Hain accepted. Nicely done. I think so, too. I like Justice. That. Yeah. And she'll learn. That's the good thing about this type of, uh, I guess, punishment. And finally, from United Press International, in Rainier, Washington, a candidate for city council did not cast a ballot for his own election and then lost by one vote. can subscribe to the Weekly Signals Weekly Review Podcast at weeklysignals.com. Weeklysignals.com. Subscribe now.